Apologies in advance for any mispronunciations in this episode. I know it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. Let's just grit our teeth and we'll get through it together. Welcome to Zoinks, the podcast that explores creepy mysteries, spooky encounters, and all things strange and unusual. Tonight, the story of nine hikers who died on Dead Mountain. What happened at Dyatlov Pass? The year was 1959, and a 23-year-old radio engineering student named Igor Dyatlov assembled a team of 10 hikers, himself included, with the aim of hiking the Ural Mountains and earning each of them a grade 3 hiking certification, the highest available in the Soviet Union at the time. Each member of the team was an experienced hiker, with many miles under their belts, and the journey seemed like a straightforward one. After spending the night in the small village of Vizhai, the group finally began their journey on January 27th, 1959. The very next day, one of their members, Yuri Yudin, would leave the group. He'd been suffering from joint pain, and realizing that he would be unable to complete the hike, decided to turn around and head back to Vizhai, leaving the group with nine members. They were Semyon Zolotaryov, 38, Alexander Kolovatov, 24, Georgi Krivonoshenko, 23, Rustam Slobodin, 23, Nikolai Thibault Brunyol, 23, Zineda Kolmogorova, 22, Yuri Doroshenko, 21, Ludmila Dubinina, 20, and their leader, Igor Dyatlov, 23. The tragically young group set off again without Yudin and continued the journey, which would, for several days, go according to plan and problem-free. That is until the night of February 1st, when a snowstorm hit, throwing the group into a difficult situation. Whether their next moves were an intentional change of plan or a mistake after getting lost, we can never be sure. What we do know is that on February 1st, the hikers deviated from their planned path and began to ascend Kolat Siakl, a mountain named by the local Mansi people due to its lack of wildlife to hunt. But, with the gift of hindsight, this name seems eerily fitting. When translated, it reads, Dead Mountain. The days passed, and as February 12th, the day the hikers were expected to return, came and went, their families began to get worried. At first, though, no action was taken. Delays are not unusual on hikes such as theirs, especially in poor weather. But on February 20th, a rescue group was dispatched. Six days later, the group's campsite would be discovered. 
Their tent, partially destroyed and covered in snow, appeared to have been cut open from the inside. Outside, there were footprints of people wearing only socks, which led to the nearby woods. It was here that they would find the remains of a fire and two humans. These were the bodies of Doroshenko and Krivonoshenko, both lying by a cedar tree, shoeless, and dressed in only their underwear. At various spots between the tent and the burned-out fire, the rescue group soon found three further bodies, those of Dyatlov, Kolmogorova, and Slobodin. It would be more than two months, and multiple search parties later, before the final four bodies would be found, lying in a ravine 75 metres away and buried under four metres of snow. Autopsies on the first five bodies revealed no fatal wounds. Slobodin's skull did show a fracture, but it was deemed non-fatal, and hypothermia was reported to be the cause of death of all five hikers. The autopsies on the final four bodies were a stark contrast. Three of them were found to have sustained fatal injuries. Thibault Brunyol had sustained major skull damage, while Dubinina and Zolotaryov were reported to have sustained major chest trauma. According to Dr. Boris Vosrovdeni, who was the forensic expert who performed the autopsies, the force required to cause such injuries would be comparable to a car crash. Dubinina's body was also found to be missing its tongue, lips, and some facial tissue, which has often brought up further questions about what happened to the hikers that night. The bodies of Dubinina, Zolotaryov, Thibaut Brunyol and Kolovatov were also found to be fully clothed, with additional items of clothing wrapped around them, suggesting that they may have died after the previous five bodies, from whom they scavenged extra pieces of clothing to help keep themselves from suffering the same fate. Ultimately, the deaths were ruled to be caused by an unknown compelling force, and the vagueness of this, along with the unusual circumstances of the case, would lead to much speculation and a few controversial claims. One of these claims suggested that the clothing the hikers had been wearing was found to be mildly radioactive, while 12-year-old Yuri Kuntsevich, who attended the funeral of several of the hikers, claimed that their skin had an unnatural orange tan. Another group of hikers near the mountain on that same night also reported witnessing a collection of strange, glowing orange spheres floating in the sky, which sparked theories about what they could be, and if they could have been involved in the deaths of the Dyatlov hikers. But how true are these claims? What is the truth of this case? Well, there are a few theories, but before we dive into those... Weird Science. This is Weird Science, the segment where we discuss bizarre news from the world of science, or just discuss some mind-boggling facts about our universe and everything in it. 
You've seen lightning a hundred times, to the point that it just feels like a normal thing. But really, lightning is an incredible phenomenon. Imagine trying to explain it to someone from another planet. They wouldn't believe you. So, let's discuss some of the astounding things we can learn about lightning. Well, firstly, a lightning bolt can be two to three miles long, but only about an inch wide, like the handle of a broom stretching all the way from cloud to ground. And despite being so narrow, a lightning bolt wields tremendous power. So tremendous, in fact, that a lightning bolt reaches temperatures five times hotter than the surface of the sun. That's so hot that when lightning strikes sand, it can fuse the sand granules together into a stony glass-like mass. They look kind of like spindly bones. It's great. I know you're dying to ask me what happens when you're struck by lightning. So let's talk about that. Around 240,000 people are hit by lightning each year, 90% of which survive. And while 75% of survivors will face long-term issues due to their injuries, 25% of survivors recover completely. Not the worst odds. But what about the 10% that die? Well, in many cases, the lightning strike interferes with the heart's rhythm, and the organ is unable to restart its usual cycle. In other cases, the lungs are damaged, preventing respiration and starving the body of oxygen. 300 million volts right through the body, five times the temperature of the sun. You could be forgiven for imagining a lightning strike a little like a cartoon, a bright flash that leaves behind a blackened and smouldering person burnt through to a crisp. But, surprisingly, the unfathomably brief nature of lightning means that burns are a lot more minimal compared to what you might expect. In fact, some of the most common lightning-related injuries don't come from the lightning bolt at all, but rather from the air around it. That's because lightning moves remarkably fast, much faster than the speed of sound, which causes a huge pressure wave, almost like the crack of a whip. We hear it as thunder, of course, when we're observing from a safe distance. But up close, the pressure wave can be enough to cause a concussion. The temperature of the lightning bolt can also heat the air in your lungs quickly enough to cause a rapid expansion that can actually cause chest trauma. A direct blow from within. And then, if you survive all of that, you might find you have some unusual marks on your skin. These are caused by the breaking of capillaries in your skin, so they follow the route of your blood vessels, taking on this distinctive branch-like shape. In fact, they almost look like lightning bolts themselves in a quirky twist. Well, that was a lot of information to learn. Hopefully we'll never need any of it. But with that out of the way, it's time to return to our main mystery for this episode and delve into some theories about what happened to the Dyatlov Pass hikers on that fateful night in 1959. Our first theory is perhaps the easiest to dismiss. It suggests that the hikers were murdered by the Mansi people, the indigenous people who gave the mountain its name. 
But it's a theory that doesn't hold up to scrutiny. There was no evidence of anyone else being present that night. And even if they had been there, and their tracks had been covered, it begs the question of why an indigenous tribe would be there at all in the middle of the night when conditions were so dangerous. There's also the question of why some of the hikers died of hypothermia, likely before their friends received their injuries. It doesn't fit with the idea of a group of people murdering them in cold blood. And what reason would they have to target the Dyatlov group anyway? Even if they had camped on their land, there was nothing to suggest that they were a threat. Would the Mansi really risk their own safety, heading out into the snow late at night to punish a group of harmless trespassers? The answer, of course, is no. This theory honestly doesn't hold up as much more than a fantasy born out of racial anxieties about indigenous people, and it doesn't deserve any serious consideration. Other theories hone in on the main mystery of the case. Why did the hikers leave their tent? The deaths themselves are relatively straightforward to explain, but what we don't know is why a group of experienced hikers would leave their tent in such a hurry putting themselves in a dangerous situation that would ultimately end their lives. One idea to explain this is infrasound. Infrasound refers to sound waves that are powerful enough to be sensed by human bodies, but too low in frequency to be heard. The idea is that infrasound is subconsciously sensed without us being consciously aware of it, and this can create a feeling of anxiety. There is some evidence that this is possible, but no evidence that it happened in this case, and due to the time that's passed, since then we're unlikely to get an answer either way on that one. The next theory brings us back to those orange orbs in the sky, because, of course, someone's always going to suggest aliens, and this case is no exception. Unfortunately, there's not much behind this theory except for the presence of unidentified objects in the sky, and even their existence is far from verified. They are addressed by another theory, however, that is marginally less far-fetched. This theory proposes that Dead Mountain was the location of a government weapons testing site, and it was one such weapon being used that alerted the hikers to danger and caused them to flee their tent. It's suggested that while the first hikers to die simply succumbed to hypothermia, the later deaths were then caused by a second detonation, explaining the severity of the injuries found on some of the bodies. For a long time, people have pointed to the evasive nature of the Russian government regarding their investigations into Dyatlov Pass, even going so far as to explain that the investigation itself was classified. There is, however, no evidence that this was the case, and no evidence that the Russian authorities were anything but clueless, just like the rest of us, as to the specifics of this case. But, while we may never know exactly what caused the hikers to leave their tent that night, we do know enough to be able to put together a reasonable reconstruction of what happened next. The hikers cut open their tent and flee, leaving behind their supplies, they arrive at the cedar tree and realize they've come too far and can't find their way back to the tent. Slobodin attempts to climb the tree for a better look at their surroundings, 
but he slips on his way back down, hitting his head and fracturing his skull. But with little outward sign of his injury, he powers on. With little options, the hikers start a fire in an attempt to keep warm, while Dyatlov, Kolmogorova and Slobodin head back in search of the tent. Before they reach the tent, Dyatlov, Kolmogorova and Slobodin succumb to hypothermia and die. Back at the cedar tree, Kravonoshenko and Doroshenko suffer the same fate. Desperate now, Dubinina, Zolotaryov, and Thibaut Brunyol strip articles of clothing from their friends' bodies to provide themselves more protection from the weather and head off in search of shelter. But they don't make it far before the unsteady snow beneath them gives way and they tumble into a ravine below, sustaining in their fall the major injuries that would ultimately bring about their deaths. That still leaves a few loose ends, though. What about the missing tongue? Or the radiation? Well, first of all, Dubinina's missing tongue can be easily explained by her body's exposure to the elements. It's possible that she lost her tongue to a scavenger, who went for soft tissue. But it's also possible, considering the position of her body, that her face suffered more rapid decay than the rest of her, due to lying face down in running water, speeding up decomposition. Then there's the orange-tinged skin. It's hard to know how accurate this is, and how much it's been exaggerated in the retelling, but bodies left to the environment can become discoloured, so I don't think this is really unexplained. Finally, there's the issue of the radiation. The simple answer is that there was no radiation. As far as I've been able to tell from digging into this, the issue of the radiation has been greatly overstated. It seems that this story originates with radiation discovered on Dubinina's coat, but this was trace amounts, and it's not unusual to find trace amounts of radiation on everyday objects. After all, everything gives off trace amounts of radiation, our own bodies included. As far as I can tell, there's no real reason to suspect that the radiation on Dubinina's coats was an abnormal amount, and no reason to think that it wasn't present before the expedition began. So that, really, is the TLDR behind this whole mystery. Most aspects of this story can be explained pretty easily. In fact, since I first started researching this mystery for our website, two further investigations have taken place that came to the same conclusions. These hikers felt that their lives were in danger, probably due to hearing or feeling something that they mistook for an avalanche, and they fled their tent, with disastrous consequences. If you have any thoughts on this mystery, I would love to hear them. You can add your comments over on our website, stay tuned to the end of the episode for those details. But, in the meantime, it's time to close out this week the dive into a ghostly encounter from the 19th century. Elva Zona Hester was born in Greenbrier County, West Virginia, in 1873, and in the late 1890s, Zona married Erasmus Strubling Trout Shoe, also known as Edward a blacksmith, 
who had moved to Creenbriar to start a new life. The marriage was entered into despite the protestations of Zona's mother, Mary Jane Hester, who had taken a strong dislike to Edward. The couple lived happily for a while, but in 1897, Zona was found dead by a young boy, sent to the house on an errand by Edward. The coroner, George Knapp, was summoned, but he didn't arrive until an hour later. Upon his arrival, Knapp found that, contrary to custom, Edward had carried the body upstairs and dressed it himself, in a dress with a stiff neck. He then remained in the room, cradling the corpse throughout Knapp's examination of the body. This caused Knapp to keep the examination brief, and the cause of death was determined to be everlasting faint, although this was later changed to childbirth, as Zona had been receiving treatment for, quote, female trouble in previous weeks. Upon hearing the news of her daughter's death, Hester was reported to have exclaimed, The devil has killed her. At the funeral, Shu reportedly behaved in a very strange manner, experiencing wild mood swings and refusing to move away from the body. At one point, he tied a scarf around the body's neck, explaining that it had been Zona's favourite. Four weeks after Zona's death, Hester experienced a visit from her late daughter during a dream. The nighttime visitation explained that her death was a murder, that Shu had broken her neck in a fit of rage when he believed that she hadn't cooked any meat for dinner. To prove this, the ghostly figure then span her head all the way around to demonstrate the severity of her injury. Following this disturbing dream, Hester spoke with prosecutor John Alfred Preston, eventually convincing him to reopen the case of Zona's death. There had been a recent rise in rumours that there had been foul play involved with the death, and it's not known whether Preston reopened the case as a result of this hearsay, or whether he was swayed by Hester's supernatural testimony. After speaking with Knapp, and learning about the brief and unusual examination of Zona's body, Preston ordered a full exhumation, and an autopsy was conducted. The autopsy revealed that Zona's neck had been broken, and her windpipe had been crushed. On this evidence, Shu was arrested. Information about Shu's past then began to surface. He had been married twice before. His first marriage ended in divorce, with his wife accusing him of great cruelty. His second wife had died under mysterious circumstances. In jail, Shu displayed great confidence that he would be released, insisting that there wasn't enough evidence against him. The trial began on June 22nd, 1897. The prosecution avoided mentioning Hester's ghostly visitation, out of worry that the jury would find her to be insane and her testimony unreliable. The defence, however, questioned Hester about the ghost, hoping to expose her as being mentally unhinged in front of the jury. 
This backfired, however, when Zona proved to be unwavering in her testimony. Not a single detail changed, and her certainty about the visitation convinced the jury that what she was saying was completely true. As it had been the defence that brought up the ghost, rather than the prosecution, the judge couldn't instruct the jury to disregard the information. Shu was found guilty of Zona's murder on July 11th, 1897, and sentenced to life in jail. He was soon transferred to West Virginia State Penitentiary, where he died in 1900 and was buried in an unmarked grave. Mary Jane Hester died in 1916. Until her death, she remained resolute in her belief that she'd been visited by the ghost of her daughter. The spirit has not been heard from since. That's everything we've got for you today, but we'll have another mystery for you in the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we have a whole website where we publish articles about all things spooky, from the supernatural to the unexplained. You can find that at daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks. That's d-a-f-a-d-i-l-l-i-e-s dot co dot uk slash zoinks. Head over there now, dive in, and creep yourself out. And be sure to join us in the comments to share your thoughts and theories. If you want to get in touch, you can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is fearbyzoinks. And you can always email us at zoinks at daffodillies.co.uk. Finally, if you have a moment, we'd love a rating and a review on whichever app you're using. It would really help us out, especially as we're a new show. Well, I hope you enjoyed our first episode. We have many more to come. I'm excited. I hope you are too. Until then, stay spooky. <laughs> <laughs>